I didn't want to accept the fact that I would have to let other people take care of me because I couldn't do it myself. I had done everything that I could. And I think the problem I have with my ego is that sometimes it's hard for me to ask for help, but I had no choice at that point. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Welcome to the No Barriers Podcast. Today, we go right to the heart of the fight against COVID-19 and meet a young New York City doctor named Andres Maldonado, who was treating patients with COVID when he himself contracted it and nearly died. It's hard to get any closer to the fight against this thing than today's conversation. This is your co-host, Dave Sherna, and I'm honored to be joined by a guest host today, Tom Lillig, longtime board president of No Barriers and author of the book, What's Within You, Your Roadmap to Living Life with No Barriers, a book in which Andres is profiled. Tom and Andres, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Well, Tom, I'd like to just start briefly with you. You uh, have been a longtime member of the No Barriers community, helped start the organization, have been our board president forever, kind of. Uh, And obviously, we've known each other for years since middle school. Thanks for allowing me to co-host with you today. That's quite uh, a privilege. Well, thank you, Tom, for making us aware of this incredible story. Andres, I'd love to start. Have you always wanted to be a doctor? Hi, Dave. Uh, Also, thanks for having me on this podcast. This is uh, pretty awesome. Um, No, actually, I never always wanted to be a doctor. I figured it out in college. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about that. How did you uh, figure it out in college? Out of high school, I was accepted into this seven-year Bachelor's of Science medical degree program. So I kind of went straight into kind of medical studies and, and science-related topics. But I guess three years into that seven-year program, they started, you know, the program started to introduce us to patient interactions and, you know, taking their history and getting to know them a little bit better. And I think that's when it clicked. Just like, you know, the human-to-human interaction about a person and, you know, they need to trust you with, you know, the only thing, the most precious thing that they have, their body. That really spoke to me that, you know, I want to be able to help them in ways that no one else can. Well, Andres, I'd love to hear a little bit about your backstory. Where did you grow up? And tell me a little bit about uh, where your family originally came from and um, when was that? And a little bit about their stories and coming to America and raising you. I'd like to talk to start talking about my father, actually, um, who I look up to a lot. Um, So his name is Jose Maldonado, and he's from El Salvador, uh, down in Central America. And him growing up, he was just completely in poverty. He would tell me that, you know, 
he had one pair of shoes, two pair of underwears. He'd have to clean them every other day. <laughs> and um, eventually, like, his mom would work hard enough to, like, gather some money. And my father did well enough in school to get into military school there, which was, like, prestigious. The issue was that while he was in military school close to graduating, the, just the Civil War started. And as people know, some people know, like, in El Salvador, that you know, primarily it was between the government and just, like, impoverished villages and people who just wanted felt a great sense of nationalism so my father was stuck in between the two so he chose to leave you know his home country in order to avoid war so he you know traveled up to the border twice because he actually got caught the first time and the second time he was able to make it from take a bus from california all the way to new york and his sister was already there and he lived in a one-bedroom apartment with her just like the New York Times article stated, he started off as a dishwasher in a diner <laughs> and kind of worked his way up from there. It's kind of incredible. Has he told uh, you stories about those journeys from El Salvador trying to get across the border? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, um, I know one thing that pops out with me is that, you know, as he's crossing the border, he has no food. You know, you have to cross this huge desert and the heat's excruciating and there's like a group of people kind of traveling with you. And just out of mercy, there were there were people on the way selling food, but my father had no money. So out of mercy, this like one lady just made him a burrito and just gave it to him because he probably looked hungry and sick and you know tired. <laughs> um, so he makes it to New York City, and yeah. he's a dishwasher there. Is that right? Yeah, and he starts picking up very small jobs. But you know, I definitely would want to ask my dad more about this. I know. He starts like just gaining a lot of money, but his goal is to, you know, meet someone, but also to like go into school, even from nothing. Because my father, my father, both my parents are pretty educated, actually. So I know like just because of like what had happened to him in El Salvador with the Civil War, he um, would attend various rallies, you know, protesting what was happening in El Salvador. And that's actually where he met my mother at the time who was in Queens College. And, you know, the rest is history pretty much from after they met each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you and your brother are born. And tell me about what it was like growing up. I had a great time growing up, you know, with my brother and my family. Throughout growing up, my parents really emphasized education, emphasized it so hard. They would use most of their money to send me and my brother to private school all the time. Now, I'm not saying that's better than public school or anything, but they it's just the fact that they valued it a lot more, that they thought it was worth paying for. So I think that was good. It also kept me disciplined <laughs> as a kid. Um, <laughs> sure. It sounds like they made quite a bit of sacrifice for you and your brother, uh, at least on the educational front. Did they ever share with you any sort of uh, life philosophy that they had about you know, what, what, what they were trying to do with their lives or what dreams they had for you? You know, my father would actually inspire me by just talking about himself. He would tell me like how he was the fourth in his class of hundreds in his military school. You know, they would all go for training and, you know, run miles. He'd try and be the first one. Or like another thing too, that's cool about my dad. Like he was part of the U19, the national soccer team. But again, it was just everything that he would tell me in forms of stories would be 
would just be an inspiration for me or, you know, would set an example. He didn't really have to directly tell me to, hey, you got to study harder. Just his stories alone would help me realize that, you know, I need to, I just need to do better in everything that I do. Yeah. But was there any particular moment or any anecdote that sort of allowed you to feel driven toward this, this, this calling in medicine? It was a collection of moments, you know, learning about how health affects minorities and just the whole country. And that too, you know, that struck me. I've always had like a sense to help, you know, minorities and medically underserved communities. I think mostly because I come from these communities and they, you know, they helped mold who I am today in a way. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And we joined this story in the middle when I first learned about you is reading the article in the New York Times. And you are a third year resident. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Could you tell me a little bit about, um, you know, the hospital that you're at and what hospital you got admitted to when you were sick? So I'm a third year emergency medicine resident. And it's part of something called the Jacoby Montefiore Emergency Medicine Residency Program. It's in the Bronx. There's three hospitals we primarily work at. Jacoby Medical Center, old hospital. It's been around for a long time. Montefiore Medical Center and Weiler Hospital or Einstein Hospital. And actually, um, we mostly work at Jacoby Hospital. It's a public hospital. So we see a lot of, you know, everyone, people don't have insurance. It doesn't matter what you have, like you can come and we'll help you. And uh, I was admitted there at Jacoby Hospital, which is, you know, everyone knows me there. So it was actually had a very good stay, very supportive stay in the ICU. Yeah. And when you were there, it sounds like your colleagues were incredibly scared for you. Were you also scared yourself? Of course. I was, you know, I was terrified. You know, when I, when I first entered, like, there's a, they had tents stationed outside of the emergency department to have people tested or at least screened or triaged, you know, for coronavirus. I was already positive, but, you know, even just entering the emergency room from the tent, nurses just looking at me, be like, what are you doing here? Like what? And another resident seeing that I'm short of breath, she's like, sit down. Why are you, why are you sitting, standing up, sit down? And just a face of concern that I just a shock, you know, that, you know, here I am in my casual clothes, like not in my scrubs or, you know, my stethoscope. I, and I look, I look bad. <laughs> you had been, had you been treating patients who had COVID-19? Yeah. You know, I'd say like three weeks before I got sick, just when everything was start, starting, you know, also with the problems of PPE and like not enough tests, I was working with coronavirus patients. And, and in your particular situation, you know, here, I, I live in Colorado, Tom's in Chicago. Uh, you know, we've got folks on my, my block, the people who live on the corner, he works in the ER, and they don't even have uh, the appropriate gear to protect themselves. Was that the same situation for you or, or not? So when it started, it was a problem. I remember um, using an N95 for three days in a row, just because I felt bad that there weren't enough N95 masks. And obviously, you know, I had no, I had no other choice. Um, that was the best way I could protect myself, but even like face shields, you know, the ones that kind of look, go entire, like cover your entire face. Um, those are limited. I remember my, my co-resident giving me one. He's like, Hey, I just washed it, you know, give it back to me next shift. 
I was like, wow, this is, this is kind of crazy that <laughs> we don't have enough materials and we're in the United States. It was, so at, the, at that moment, it, were you scared? Like, were you, were you going into work afraid? Or was it, no, just like, hey, I, this is my job. I'm doing my job. Tell me a little bit about that time before you even got sick. It seems to me as someone who isn't a doctor, like, I'd be afraid to go to work. I was okay going into the ER, but when the, I would have to go into a patient's room, I was scared. I remember the first patient that I had to see that was suspected to have coronavirus I put everything, I, I double gloved, I put a gown, I, I, I found everything before I would enter the room. And then even inside of the room, I, stayed, you know, I took a couple steps back. It felt pretty impersonal, the interaction I was having with the patient. Uh, but I think he could understand. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was scared to go into every room that was suspected to have COVID-19. So then it seems that you started feeling ill uh, was that a week or so later? Is that right? I had been working for two weeks when, you know, coronavirus was starting to, to ramp in. Um, yeah, two weeks. And then like a weekend passed. And then on that Monday, March 23rd, is that just really, really bad chills. So you have the chills and are you thinking this will go away? Or tell me about the thought process in your head before you actually went into the ER. What action did you take then? So it took nine days for me to get into the ER. And I've been reading some comments here and there. There's some misconception that I, you know, I waited too long to go in. But, you know, I'll just explain that a little bit better. You know, I'm young, 27, no medical problems, I don't smoke. And, you know, I had these chills. It reminded me one of like when I was a child, you know, I'm pretty sure most people have had some kind of cold or virus. And you have a little bit of a fever and it just goes away, you know? So I, I thought to myself, uh, this can't be coronavirus, you know? There's no way. This is probably the flu. I've never had the flu before. You know, as the days passed, I had a fever. It would break with Tylenol, which wasn't the problem. I was still eating. I was still playing video games, you know, talking to my friends, talking to my parents, my brother. But, you know, day five, I spoke to another colleague of mine who she got tested because she wasn't feeling well. So I was like, okay, fine. I'll go, I'll go get tested. You know, I won't just like stay at home and accept that this is happening. Let me get some more information. So uh, I went to Jacoby hospital. They have like a sort of clinic outside or conjoined with it. And they tested me immediately. No problems. I found got the results the next day. They called me, said I'm positive. So I was like, okay, you know, I don't have the flu. I have coronavirus but I, I'm doing okay. I'm still doing okay. This isn't that bad. You know, this at the time, it still affects older people, <laughs> you know, with, with chronic medical problems. Uh, I'll be all right. And it's funny that that night on the sixth day is when I had the worst fever that, you know, I've had up to that moment, you know, 102, 103. Um, the next day I had a fever of 104. I'm delirious on my bed in like the fetal position. I remember texting my friend, uh, his name's Car Dr. Lutz or Carlo for me. <laughs> I asked him, hey, you know, what's the data on taking taking NSAIDs or ibuprofen with coronavirus? And he explains to me, data isn't strong. It probably is fine. You know, you're young. You don't have kidney problems. And I'm becoming desperate. I'm looking for other modalities to help help my illness. And, you know, for those three days, I, was, I wasn't playing video games. I wasn't really talking on the phone. I, I was horrible. Most sick I've ever been until day nine, where I wake up, it's like eight in the morning. 
And I have this really horrible brain fog. I didn't want to accept the fact that I would have to, you know, let other people take care of me because I couldn't do it myself. But for the sake of my life, I had done everything that I could in my apartment. I just needed help. And I think the problem I have with my ego is that sometimes it's hard for me to ask for help, but I had no choice at that point. And, the, and there must be, you know, as a, as a doctor, there must be some fear of not only this idea of letting people take care of me, but I am accepting by going into the hospital that this is pretty serious. And um, that's sort of like a, in my mind, sort of that next level of acceptance of, I can't do this alone and I need help. And this is getting pretty serious. I mean, yeah, I had been trying to be a good doctor for myself, myself, and it was time to let other doctors be good for me. And I had to realize that even when that day when I was short of breath and I, I couldn't even complete sentences, I'd have to take two, three breaths in between them. I still actually, I remember I told my roommate, he's a, he's a first year resident and he's an intern um, in emergency medicine too. I told him, I'm just going to try and sleep this off for an hour as if there were, that was going to do anything. I wake up and I magically feel better. <laughs> yeah, eventually I woke up and he drove me to the emergency department, uh, thankfully. I, I started to accept that I need help from other people. I can't do this on my own. Yeah, that's a, a pretty powerful story of accepting that and then taking action for yourself for that. During this time, are you communicating with your parents at all? Or uh, tell me about your interaction with uh, your father, you know, someone that has inspired you and driven you most of your life. Yeah, like every day, I think we would FaceTime also with my brother and my girlfriend, but my father in particular, he, he's very, you know, in times of trouble, he always uh, kind of has the same general message. You know, you just got to pray to God. You just, you know, you have to be strong. You got to eat well. You got to brush your teeth, like basic things too. And I think just that those familiar phrases and messages of inspiration, you know, it helped me. It helped me feel like things are still normal. Things are okay things will still be okay. And even, even then, when I was like in the hospital, my father still did the same thing. He never let me know that he was worried, ever. And I, that's huge, right? Because as you start to see other people worry, you start to think, okay, this is a little bit more serious. But my father never, never did that. And you know, it's incredible. How can he not show me that he's worried? So you're feeling trusting. You're in the hospital admitted now and you're feeling ill. I mean, you recognize that this is now serious. Tell me about what it is that you are feeling inside. Are you feeling uh, this sense of stress and fear? Are you actively, um, I guess you'd call fighting this disease inside you. Tell me about what's going on in your mind during that time. There's two phases when I were in the hospital, like one when I was in the ER and getting worse and two when I was in the ICU when they finally rolled me up. But I guess in the ER, I still felt, I felt okay. I, I felt confident in my peers and you know, everyone was coming in and out and greeting me. But what struck me was when the 
And I knew it. I knew it. I knew when I woke up in the morning, the attending Dr. Corsier, he comes in arms crossed. You know, he's this old Italian dude and with a heavy New York accent. And he's like, you know, you're being admitted, right? And I, in a strict, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. And I looked down and he's just staring at me. He's watching my vitals. And that's when it really hit me, you know, that this is real. Like I'm 27 and I'm being admitted to a hospital and we don't admit anyone. We admit the 60 year old with like a heart attack or something like a 27 year old with coronavirus. This is what, what the hell is going on? <laughs> you know, I, I call, I call my girlfriend I'm, and I'm terrified and I can't hide it. Now anything is possible. Now there's a real chance that I could actually die. And that's insane. <laughs> yeah. And, and as you're going through that, Andres, and then you moved into the ICU, as you're reflecting back on this now, because now it's been, you know, what is it? It's been weeks later. Um, mm-hmm. And you think about kind of your old self and maybe that's the self you, you have now become. I'm just sort of curious, like you, you mentioned, I'm strong, I'm stoic, I hide my emotions. And now you're in the situation where that isn't working. Do you feel like going through that process of having to open up and experience all those emotions and perhaps even share them in different ways, uh, has that affected how you think you'll approach you know, challenges in the future? It already has. You know, every patient encounter that I have now, I obviously take care of them from the medical standpoint. But from an emotional standpoint, I want to ease them more. You know, back in the, you know, and sometimes I would tell myself as a joke, you know, you don't have to be a nice doctor, but you have to be a good doctor. And I think some people would understand that in the medical field. But you know, if you are a nice doctor as well, you, that makes you a better doctor. Um, and that's something that all of this, you know, this experience was insanely humbling and vulnerable for me. And I understand, I really do understand now how it is to be on that stretcher that's uncomfortable. Um, you don't have your phone charger. You're, you don't have clothes. You're being admitted. What do you do? You know, you need a toothbrush. Like, I, I know exactly how it feels. And how distressing it can be and uncertain. And I've been trying to use it with a lot of my patient interactions, even when I don't have to. I tell them, hey, you know, I've been sick too. I try not to give a lot of details unless they ask, but I, you know, I tell them, I know how you feel. Trust me, believe me when I say this, you know, I know how you feel. And it's, I feel like it's been helping some patients, you know, in small ways, but it's changed me. It's changed me forever. So that's, that's, that's a great revelation and, and so empowering to hear when you think about this, this uh, experience that you've had, it clearly has changed you as your doctor and in, in terms of your approach, has it changed you as a person as well? Yeah, it's changed me as a person in the way that I appreciate the love and support more from people in general even people that you don't expect to know, you know, and that makes me want to get to know these people more and be able to maybe one day give that back too, whenever they need it. That's powerful. Uh, Andres, I'd like to go back to the, the storyline. I, I kind of wanted to get to the heart of some of these really profound lessons that you learned, but um, you, you kind of left the storyline of your experience. You're in the ER, you're nervous, you're, you're, 
girlfriends flying in. Um, tell us what happened next. So the way this um, virus works, we think there's like a one phase of mild illness, what, like I had, and then a second phase of something called like cytokine storm, a huge inflammatory response. And I had been having waves of that. And finally, being in the ER for so long, a wave was coming, a wave of high fevers, chills, body aches, delirium. And they had been deciding where to put me. You know, if I can, if, if I was stable for the medical wards where there isn't always constant monitoring, or do I need the most, the highest level of care that a hospital can, can offer to the intensive care unit? And they saw that wave coming. And despite them giving me all these antibiotics, fluids, and Tylenol, I was still, it was nothing mattered. None of that mattered. This virus was still just causing my body to go haywire. So when, you know, Dr. Romo, he's a pediatrician. And the reason he's involved in my care, side note, the hospitals rearranged their units to take care of people for COVID. So the PICU, instead of taking care of people 20 years and younger, they did it to 30 years and younger because of the overwhelming response at the time. So that's why he was, you know, pediatrician was involved in my care. But I also know him personally. You know, I've been to family parties, my girlfriend, and he's there with his, you know, family. So he saw this wave. He saw my, like, my respiratory rate jump up to something unsafe, my heart rate, a fever, regardless of Tylenol, 103. And I just, I looked like crap on that stretcher. That completely alarmed him. So he met with the chairman, my director, Mike Jones, Dr. Corsiari, the attending, and they were talking right outside my room. And I heard, you know, I, I heard their conversation bits and pieces, but the, the most distinct one was Dr. Romo sounding extremely concerned and saying, this, this guy needs to be on high flow right now. He needs to go up to the PICU right now. And hearing him worry, I am like, oh man, like this is bad. And you can't see me, but I'm holding my head right now. <laughs> I was like, if, he's, if these people are worried, I'm worried. You know, because I've worked with them side by side and I've, you know, I know, and I've seen critically ill patients and, you, you know, you watch them and you know when to get worried. So I have all these like big shot, you know, doctors being worried about me. So that just perpetuated my fear. It was pretty overwhelming at that point. So I know that you're a stoic guy. I know that you're this, this, this epitome of like keeping it together when you're hearing and feeling what you're feeling and what you're hearing, was there a moment where you just broke down? Was there a moment where you just let that all out? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think I've told anyone. <laughs> you know, while they were having this conversation, they stopped and there was a moment of just like silence. The lights were off in my room could hear the monitor beeping, you know, pretty fast because of my heart rate. And I'm just looking outside the window and knowing I can't leave. I'm sick. This is bad. Everyone's worried. I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm alone in this room too. I, I, I did cry. I, I honestly did to myself for a few minutes. And then I kind of let that wear off. You know, this is, you know, things, I started to think like, you know, I'm in the right place. Then that's, I tell patients all the, all the time when they get emotional, I'm like, you're in the right place right now. You know, you're not home, you're in a hospital, we can help you. And I gave, I gave myself that, 
you know, that advice as well. And it's true. You know, I am in the right place. You know, people are watching over me. And yes, I don't know what's going to happen, but I can trust these people with my life. So I let these tears kind of just get through my system and, and, you know, wipe, wipe them from my eyes and, and try to hide the fact that I had cried. <laughs> uh, and I, I got over it for that split moment. You know, I, I got back you know, kind of back to baseline, but you're, yeah, no one, no one has asked me that. And I, I haven't really shared that. Well, thank you for, for sharing that and telling us a little bit more about that moment. After those tears came out and you seem to sort of reassure yourself of that same lesson that you taught all your patients that you're in the spot that you need to be in, you're in the right place for this care. I'm wondering, did you, knowing that the struggle that you're facing and are, you know, about to face, is there anything as a patient that you could actively do to fight, to fight this virus? Is there something that you thought in your head, I am in a fight and I, I, my will can do something about this? That's interesting. My will, I think, yeah, definitely. Just having, you know, your spirits up high and that constant connection with your family and your girlfriend, you know, someone you love and hearing words of optimism from every angle. I think that has, that definitely plays a role in, in sort of conquering whatever you're, you're going through, you know, that, that goes beyond, you know, I guess the physical too, to sound a little bit spiritual, but just, I think when you have a determination to accomplish something or to live or the will to do something, I think that puts you in an advantage actually to overcome whatever you're facing at the moment. And, you know, that's how I received it from the people that I care about the most. Yeah. I mean, that's a really profound lesson. I think to, to remember that the power, as you put it in your own words of rooting for someone and how much that, having people surrounding you rooting for you can actually, you know, potentially help the person who needs the rooting for, you know, not always, obviously, you know, sometimes it can't do everything you want it to do, but that rooting is pretty important part of the process. Take us now, uh, like, obviously you're, you're here and you're, you're healthy now again. And so uh, tell us, you know, the kind of the, the tail end of this story, you're, you're being admitted to the highest level of care. Things are not looking good. Uh, what happens? So, you know, after they had the conversation of where to put me, I hear like a little bit of commotion outside. Dr. Rome was like, where's the portable monitor? You know, the thing that tells them my heart rate, but. And he's looking for it. He's like, where do I get it? And then the nurse is helping him look for it outside. And I'm like, okay, this is good. Like, I'm finally going up to the ICU. Thank you. Like, <laughs> uh, this is good. And he comes in with the NP, Donya Carter. And typically, you have a transporter, someone who's, you know, their job specifically is to transfer people from point A to point B or, like, pack red blood cells from, like, here to the ER. And they just completely ignore it. The attending himself and with the NP and the nurse on the side, they, they themselves pushed me up to the ICU and they don't have to do that. You know, this, he's an attending, he can tell a resident to do it, or he can tell, you know, someone else to do it. 
but he was so concerned that he felt that I had to go up immediately when he wanted. I felt that urgency as they were rolling me up into the elevator, up to the sixth floor, and even more when they got me into the to, to the ICU. It's like shaped like a semicircle, and I'm like room four. And I, you know, they roll me in, and they're like, "Okay, we're going to transfer you to the bed." And even then, I was still determined to like not let this virus completely take me out. And I told them, "No, no, no! I can stand up. I can stand up and get to the other bed." And I did, and I was really short of breath, and that was probably a bad idea. But, <laughs> but they put me on the stretcher, and then that's when I kind of just sat back. I'm sweating. I'm feeling, you know, pretty, pretty out of it, pretty delirious, and. You know, all the nurses, they start to undress me. This happens, you know, they undress you, they put the gown on you, they put like the heart monitor stickers for the ones they have in their monitor. They placed me on oxygen. And it's funny when the respiratory therapist, he was placing the high flow nasal cannula, he stops and he looks and he's like, I know you. And it's, it's in the, his name's Raj. He, he works down in the ER, but he's been working all over the hospital. And I was like, yeah, how's it going? And then he puts on the high flow nasal cannula for me and you know i like that that was like sort of like you know even he was shocked i remember his eyes opening up a little bit saying i know you like you're not supposed to be here but as i have the high flow i'm i'm feeling still feeling bad and you know i have these two pediatric residents asking me questions and they asked me about what was happening you know the story the medical history i remember just answering yes or no i was just too short of breath but you see there's two icu attendings dr Dr. Conway and Dr. Burkow and Dr. Romo was there too. And they're just staring at me. And this is something I guess people wouldn't know, but like I had mentioned before, when there's like a sick patient, you just, you just stare at them for a while. You just watch them. You see how they're breathing. You see like what color their skin is, if they're sweating, how they're interacting. And you try and make an, a, just a clinical picture, like very subjective, but pretty right most of the time and you you see how they're they're going to do and they're watching me and i know they're doing that and they look concerned all of them <laughs> um they're looking at the monitor and they look back at me and they look at the monitor and i know i know what's thinking in their mind is because i've been there you know is he going to get worse is the high flow not enough is he going to need something else and that word, I'm pretty sure that word has creeped into their mind at some point, just the word of intubation. But I just closed my eyes and I started breathing with the high flow. And little by little, after a couple of minutes, you know, it starts working. Um, it's, you know, this high flow nasal cannula, it sounds, you know, straightforward, but it just, it's high flows of oxygen, like 30 liters per minute into your lungs. And it also creates a positive pressure to sort of open up the collapsed parts of your lungs that this virus was doing pretty horribly and little by little. And I remember I'm feeling better, like even from the breathing standpoint and Dr. Romo, he's looking at, you know, the monitor and he's saying, look, you know, he's breathing slower. He's from 35, you know, he's down to like 28, 25. And I stayed at 25. And then that's when they kind of all just took like a sigh of relief. Like that was really close to that cliff you know, where you fall off and then you can't come back. And I think I, I showed up just in time to the hospital. I didn't know. Maybe if I had taken another two hours nap, you know, in my room to try and get better, I don't know if I would have made it, you know, without being intubated. You went from the, what, as you said, 
almost going off the cliff to uh, recovery. Yeah. You know, later that day too, as uh, you know, this New York Times article mentioned, dude, I had re- received an experimental medication called tozolizumab with the oxygen and the high flow and with this experimental medication, it's, it was remarkable to just feel so good that like in a couple of hours after being in the ICU, you know, I felt like myself again. And it sounds like a, a, a handful of days later you were discharged. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it took a couple of days just because I still required that high oxygen. My lungs had, had been like damaged from this. Yes, the fever was gone mm-hmm. and, you know, my nausea, my appetite was bad, but my lungs still had to repair. It was a gradual process. And then I had to work on it myself too, you know, with breathing exercises and trying to walk around my room. But little by little, you know, these things don't happen fast overnight. And Andres, I understand you are better now and you're actually, I think, back at work. Is that right? Yeah, I worked a shift yesterday, a 12-hour shift in the adult side. Um, I feel good. You know, there are some residual things. Like, I get a little short of breath when I talk a lot and pretty fast. And, you know, if I go up the stairs, I'm more than usual. But it just feels like something that I can improve on. It just feels like I took a big hit on my endurance. You know, if I go, if I were to exercise one day, yeah, I'll, I'll get better. And I feel, I feel good. After living through this experience, you know, obviously there's a lot of pain that you endured, a lot of fear that you endured and that people close to you endured. Is there anything that you would say was a gift that came out of this experience for you? And if so, could you tell us a little bit about that? I think a gift I received from all of this was not only empathy, but sympathy for those who are ill. We're always taught empathy in medical school from a, you know, we have a definition and we try and apply it in these simulations, but with people, you know, it's a little different. Everyone's different. It's hard to give empathy sometimes, but this taught me like another level of deeper and like sympathy for someone. You know, someone who's in pain, someone who just needs a urinal, you know, to pee in because they can't get up. You know, maybe they had an amputation and like, it just, it, it hits something deeper inside of me that I, maybe at some point I had forgotten this, you know, this, this willingness to not only understand where a patient is coming from, but to whatever that entails as well. The emotions, the social implications, the fears, the worries, everything. And that's a gift that I don't feel like people always feel that, or they forget it at some point. And I hope I can ha- you know, hold on to this for the rest of my life. That's great. Andres, do you have any token or, or um, I guess you'd say a memento of your time being a patient, of your time having lived through this? Do you keep your wristband somewhere or do you have any any sort of reminder of this extraordinary experience that you had? I have the discharge paperwork just on top of my dresser. It doesn't have to be there, but I kind of, I, I just leave it there. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's in my line of sight and I see it and it, you know, I just think about, yeah, I was, I was a patient, you know, I was a patient one time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we, 
teach at No Barriers is our slogan of what's within you is stronger than what's in your way as a way to offer people in some ways that that little bit of optimism or or um, trust that they can get through it, you know, whatever that struggle is that they're going through. I just wondered, wondered if you had any reflection on that. What's within you is stronger than what's in your way. I think it's something like you mentioned before, just like that innate determination, work ethic and will to overcome whatever you're facing can push you to, to accomplish things that you would never expect um, can push you to even defy death at some point. And it's something inexplicable that I think everyone has um, just the way they find it is in different ways. I found mine through this horrible virus. I, like I said, I, I think everyone has that. They just need to find it or discover it in some way. Well, that's great. I can't well, think of a better way to end. Andres, it's been a real honor to have you on the show. I feel happy and proud knowing that there are physicians like you out there treating those who are the most ill. Andres, it's been a real honor. Thank you so much for all that you are doing and thanks for sharing your story. Thank you, you know, for hearing my story as well and just, you know, having me on the show, you know. Tom, great conversation. Thank you for bringing Andres to us. What was something that really stood out for you in the conversation today? Well, I think that the acknowledgement and the transformation that Andres shared with us was probably the most powerful thing. And it's a reminder to me that, that when those transformations happen, that we can allow ourselves to be vulnerable. We can allow ourselves to lean into whatever those feelings are that we're having, the fear, the fight, and ultimately depend on that team around us to help us get through it. Yeah. And for me, you know, I'll go back to that segment where Andres talked about the power of the people rooting for you. Um, I think that's something we all have the opportunity in our lives to root for others. And that act of rooting for others can have tremendous impact, not only on the person you're rooting for, but it can bring a lot of fulfillment to your own life. So I think it's something we should all do more of root for others. With that, Uh, We are going to end our show today. As always, you can find our show notes at nobarrierspodcast.com. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Andres. Thank you. The production team behind this podcast includes senior producer Pauline Schaefer, executive producer Diedrich Jonk, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Kotman, graphics by Sam Davis, and marketing support by Megan Lee and Carly Sandsmark. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com. Fighting and see